Welcome to the Creative Land Podcast Network. Join us as we share our favorite RPGs, one-shot games, tabletop games, reviews of items, and convention panels, and other exciting things that we run into from time to time. Sit back and enjoy the show. Hi, this is Kelly, a.k.a. Trixie from Ragnarok and Roll, a sign to Ragnarok story, and Tilda Wimblewick from D&D Journey of the 5th Edition. First off, I would just like to say thank you to everyone for listening to our varied adventures, as well as for rating us on iTunes and RPGpodcast.com. If you haven't rated us yet, we would greatly appreciate it if you could. And if you're looking for more ways to support our efforts, we are now on Patreon, a great site where you can help us continue making more podcasts, as well as some special surprises for our patrons. If you can, please look us up at www.patreon.com slash cppn. Every little bit helps. And again, thank you for listening. And wholeheartedly enjoy the whole costuming side of it. I've been on long-time costumers for Renaissance Fair and all that sort of jazz, so... Very happy to be part of this world. Um, so my policy, uh, which for those of you who attend my morning panel, it's the same thing applies, which is I will answer any question you have at all honestly, or as honestly as possible, with two exceptions. If it's a spoiler, I'll ask you to come and talk to me later. Um, and please feel free to approach me at any point in time when you see me wandering around. I'm always happy to sign stuff whenever you want. Um, and the other thing is uh, sometimes I will just categorically deny whatever I said here later on the internet. So just be aware of that. Um, you can take what I say here honestly, and whatever's on the internet is lies, all lies. <laughs> there it is. Um, but yeah, any questions you have about anything, I'm always happy to answer them um, as honestly as I possibly can. Very cool. So, um, accidentally, accidentally, 12 years ago. Mm. So give everybody that. Uh, so, I was uh, happily, I'm an archaeologist by training. That's where my background is. That's what I thought I would be for the rest of my life. Um, I so accidentally became an author as well. But I've always written fiction since I was very, very young. And uh, the, the paranormal urban fantasy bubble was occurring. And I was like, oh, I like this genre, but it's too dark. I would like it to be funnier. I would like strong female main character. I would like to be said in the past. And with some alternate history stuff going on. And of course, I wanted to be object focused because I'm an archaeologist. So that's what history is to me. Um, and so I started writing this funny, quirky comedy of manners that turned out to be steampunk. And I was like, oh, there's a thing. And then I was like, oh, there's a, there's a movement that goes along with this thing that is like, aesthetics and music and all of this other stuff that I was absolutely jumped feet first in. In fact, uh, secretly on the DL, I'm responsible for programming um, 2007's Nova Albion, which was the first steampunk convention in North America that we know of. So um, yeah, so I got in on the convention side of it, actually. And that's before my book came out, so yeah. So when you go to do these, your, your, you know, start off on a project. You know, you, you say that you had that, that laundry list of, of punch lists, right? Yeah. Do you have that before you have an idea, or is it all kind of forming in there as a soup? Um, so for me, I have lots of concepts and ideas and ideas for stories and plots and stuff like that. 
and characters that I could use, because now I have this sort of vast universe with all these different characters in it. But I don't actually start writing anything until I have what I call the epiphany moment. <laughs> and for me, the epiphany moment is when I see two, the main character and another character in conversation with each other. And once I have that moment, because I'm a very dialogue-driven author, you may or may not have realized this, it, it's easiest for me to write dialogue. I really see stuff sort of cinematically in my head. So when I, um, when I see that one scene, that's when I know everything is going to work, because that's the scene where I really feel the characters. So for Solus, and it's not always, in fact, it's rarely the first scene, but so for Solus, the scene that crystallized that book was Ivy and Alexia walking in Hyde Park together, casually talking about the fact that Alexia accidentally killed a vampire the night before. <laughs> that was the first, that was when I was like, oh, I'm writing this book, like immediately. It's like, that, that's it. Um, so yeah, that's for me, that's what I need. I need that epiphany. Yeah. No, that's fascinating because, I mean, I wouldn't know how to start. Um, <laughs> you have an idea, but you know. Yeah, and then I tend to outline pretty strictly. I like outlining, I'm less, outline driven now than that I'm 30 books in, so <laughs> I kind of have osmos a lot of the beats and standards for outlines. I don't really need an outline as much, but I still have a pretty concrete idea of like, things I want to hit at what time and how the story is going to flow, because I do write mostly comedies and manners, and that means that pacing is something I have to think about a lot, because mm -hmm. If you have like something explode and then everybody runs around and then sits down and has tea and talk about it, that's not exactly a reliable action-driven sequence of events. <laughs> so I need to know what other bits of things I throw in, like humor or romance or what have you, to like keep the pace up so that there's something being gifted to the reader in each subsequent scene. Right. That if it can't be action, is something else that the reader's looking for. Yeah. yeah. Do you have to dedicate hours to the day? I mean, what's your process? I mean, that's got to be yeah. that's brutal, right? I mean, there's yeah. days that you don't want to. We didn't really get onto the did a business discussion earlier today, which if you guys are readers, good for you not showing up to that one because <laughs> uh, it was very businessy, which I also really like to talk about. But the the creative side of that is like. I had to figure out like when I am most creative. And I think a lot of creatives have to do this. Like, what, like literally, what time of day do I gravitate towards costuming or um, art or, in my case, writing, right? Yeah. Um, and so for me, it's pretty strictly afternoon. Like, after tea, it's time to write, and you know, I'll have my first cup of tea around two, and then it's time to write. So I usually write. And I write a certain number of words a day. That's so I write 2,000 two words a day, four days a week when I'm on a deadline. All my deadlines are self-imposed now. Um, Mondays is all business all day long. That's how much like business stuff I have to do. Mornings, I don't think properly. So that's all like emails and communication with New York for the traditional stuff and uploading for the indie stuff, things like that, talking to cover designers and editors and stuff. Um, and then I try and do some kind of exercise or whatever, and then I and I always start writing around two o'clock in the afternoon, and then it's two thousand words, however long that takes me, <laughs> right? right? So sometimes it takes me a couple of hours, and sometimes I'm still typing at nine o'clock at night, and just have to not do anything else until the 
those, those words are bound. That's a lot of, I mean, that's discipline. Hey, I think, I mean, it's my job. And this yeah. is, again, we didn't, I didn't talk about this on the business thing, but like, if you're going to turn a hobby into full-time work, then you're gonna have to end up treating your hobby like a job. And if you're willing to make that transition, you should be seriously thinking about how that impacts your enjoyment of the hobby. Which is not to say I'm not delighted to be a writer. It is an unexpected joy in my life. But also, it is my job, and I need to produce words and books to survive, to eat food. So well, um, I treat it that way. The fan base now that you know devouring it. Yes, expectations it must be met. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> we all saw misery. You know your 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 dialogue based, right? Mm. But you're also doing historic. Mm. So how do you mix in? Do you do research yeah. for that to give it the flavor, and, and what's the balance with going too historical, where people are yes. like you lose you lose the, the, the thread almost because you're like what? Yeah. Uh, so historical, I do quite a bit of research, uh, less now than I used to because I've researched over the past <laughs> twelve years. Um, but I have like two things in my favor. I am half British, and I did live there for a very long time, on and off throughout my life. My mom's an expat, um, so I feel sense of general people there and stuff like that. And then um, I had to research at least the scientific side of the foreign era quite a bit because that's my discipline. So archaeology and archaeologists started. It's a young science. It's like young social science, and it started basically in the Victorian era with. Looting, it's not a glorious beginning. Um, but I had to study what was going on in scientific thought at the time quite a bit, and that's very much informed and helped my steampunk writing. But also because I come from academia, I have very good research skills that are sort of germane to being a researcher for fiction. So um, when you're doing historical stuff. But also, and I, I like to say this quite a bit, but is I. I can put lasers on my top hats if I just explain it properly, right? Absolutely. Like yeah. that's the fiction part of steampunk is like I get to just fart around sometimes, so long as I write it appropriately. Well, as the guy who builds that lasers and actually puts them on hats, yes. I get that. Yeah. But I would think though it would be more challenging with the dialogue, oh. getting that you know the voice mm. of the time and how you balance like. I mix it up, so I'm unashamedly about the sort of modern aspect of tone. Yeah. Um, I want, more than anything, my primary goal in writing is to leave my readers smiling. Like, I just want people to be, have been entertained and had a good time. Yeah. And to that end, I will sacrifice authenticity, various other things, fourth wall breaking, all sorts of stuff. Because I just want, I consider myself an entertainer first and foremost. And so, um, I will do lots of research that never make it into the book, for example, because it would be boring to read about that. Right. So then I'll do a blog post. <laughs> and I'll like, you go read about like medical science in the Victorian era, because I wrote a doctor character, but I can't include all of that, right? Um, but I did a lot of research for it. Uh, and that's like the secret to writing any kind of historical fiction, I think, is like just learning how much patience your readers have with you. One of the reasons I write comedy is because Readers will give you more patience if they know the payout is laughter. So I can write an entire paragraph describing what people are wearing, and if I put Ivy's ridiculous hat at the end of that paragraph, <laughs> everybody's happy to have read that whole paragraph about fashion because I made you laugh at the end of it. And that's like Ivy. Because Ivy has 
So that's like that's a that's but that's also a writer trick, right? That's a toolkit uh, for yeah. For, yeah, for reward. It's we call it rewarding the careful reader, and I do that a lot. So I drop cookies about favorite characters that if you have the patience to wade through a whole paragraph, you'll get like a tiny mention of a character who's gonna show up in three books or showed up four books ago. Um, but only if you waded through all of the wordage do you actually get that reward. So I do things like that where I'm like, you'll still enjoy the story if you're a fast reader or a skim reader or whatever, but you get little you get little cookies on the reread, you get little cookies if you've read the whole series and then the next one and then you go back and reread. Like I try and layer as much as possible so that there's always some a little something you get from me no matter how many times you've read the books. Yes. So over 30. Over 30 books, yeah. Not 30. all in the same universe. That's that's so So have you found now that are you moving into this like kind of universe building, or are you mm -hmm. still Bob from your little multiverse? I, I I will say I need a lot of help. Uh, so I have a team of very dedicated beta readers. There are just four of them, but they do things like reread all the books every year, so they're ready for the next one and stuff like that, or at least prep read the one. So they'll read all the finishing school books if I know if I told them that the finishing school spinoff is happening or what have you. Um, and they also have a wiki. So I have a wiki up for the universe. And so they can consult that to make sure that I'm getting eye color correct and all that sort of thing. When you have a vast cast, right, you need that kind of thing. You do. It's like the Marvel Universe or whatever. And especially if you're going to drop them in mm -hmm. like that. And not name them. Yes, mm -hmm. and to allude to them. Yeah, that's always one of my um, favorite tactics. But I definitely go through, like, I'm feeling this universe and now, like, so I've actually been writing mostly sci-fi recently. Uh, for various reasons, like my two other series, so I have three. I have uh, the Steampunk Universe, the Parasaurs. I have the San Andreas Shifters, or, uh, which is my urban fantasy paranormal romance series. And then I have the Tinkered Stars, which is my sci-fi stuff. And uh, for obvious reasons over the last two years, it turns out I couldn't write anything until I gave myself license to leave Earth. Um, <laughs> turns out uh, the only thing I really could write was sci-fi for the last the year or so, um, and so I did. <laughs> that's all I wrote. Yeah. Uh, so that, but that's the kind of upside of having multiple different universes to play. It. It's like when you're not feeling one, you can emotionally shift, just write something yeah, else from yeah. You know, you don't want to wear jeans every day. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Sometimes you want to wear corsets. Sometimes you want to wear spacesuits. So, <laughs> so all right. Let's let's go with that. That. Um, how hard do you try to go like science? Science. You know, like hard. I do not just hard to No, no. Uh, my, uh, what I think about, like, so there's the stuff that would, if I talked to readers, they would say they read me, me before, and there's the stuff that I think people are actually reading me for, um, and that's the that is the that is the tendons that interconnect all of the universes I write in, and that for me is a, a romantic thread, um, uh, found family and comfort read. People who read me read me because I leave, they know you get a hug from my books, right? You get the reader version of a hug. It's going to leave you satisfied and happy. I'm not going to kill anybody. Everything's going to be fine, right? So that contract is one I never break in any universe I write in. Okay. Um, I don't have a hard science contract. There are definitely authors who, no matter what they write, whether they're writing epic fantasy or hard sci-fi or, you know, 
really put in a lot of research into the scientific side of it. They developed a magical system that's almost scientifically based, really heavy. And that's what their readers are after, but that meticulous myth. In general, I don't think that's what readers want from me. They want this other set of like protocols that I just try not never to break. Yeah. Um, I could write for sci-fi, but I don't see that as something I'd really enjoy doing. Yeah. So it's it's found family again, it's frivolous aliens, it's comedic. What happens when you put a cat in zero gravity? It's this. <laughs> or not. How desperately do you try to keep a cat out of zero gravity? <laughs> Thirty books, right? And you're talking a lot about expectations and you know your your interaction with the fans that you have and the, and the contract. You've had to obviously learn all that. I mean, were there early times where you thought they would react one way and things went the other no, way? No, if anything, people have surprised me more in the positive direction than the negative. So when I did like Fifth Gender, for example, I was like, I don't know if anybody is gonna go for this. Like, it's completely outside of my wheelhouse. And the people who gave it a chance just freaking loved it, which was one of the ways I developed this, like, oh, right, I still gave them what they wanted, it's just the readers didn't understand that, that I was still gonna be able to do that with sci-fi. So they gave the sci-fi a chance, kind of, and the people who gave it a chance got it. Um, but fortunately or unfortunately for me, I was kind of prepared for that with the transition to YA. Because when I moved from um, adult steampunk to YA steampunk, essentially, I got quite a few letters from people who were like, I don't read YA, I'm not gonna read this. And I was like, crossover characters, same universe, are you sure? <laughs> They're like, no, I'll wait till you go back to adult. I was like, that's fine, I'll go back to it eventually. Um, <laughs> and you know, 10 years later, those same people will finally be like, well, you haven't done steampunk in a while, so I finally decided that I would try your YA series, and I love it, and I'm like, <laughs> Strangely enough, same author. <laughs> also, the great secret is like most of my stuff has a little bit of a YA chassis because the pacing in YA is very good. It's a genre I love. I like a kind of finding your place in the universe narrative, which most YA has, sure. coming of age kind of deal. Um, so, so this is like basically a YA chassis. Tell them. <laughs> <laughs> it's, just, it's just saying. It's spicy. Um, yeah, so. <laughs> uh, so a lot of my stuff has that kind of, like, it's there as the backbone that, like, helps, like I said, it helps keep my pacing good because pacing is something I think about a lot. So I use YA pacing techniques and urban fantasy pacing techniques, no matter what I'm writing for these days. That's What don't they know? What do you want to throw out? My super secret skill is I can slice bread perfectly straight. But the really crusty stuff. Damn! What's the secret? I I I was raised by a carpenter. Shamed my mother constantly for slicing bad bread badly. So I was like, this is a this is a moral. Dilemma, and if I can't slice bread, I should be shamed as a human. Does that translate to things like bagels, too? Yes. Oh, and like that, that is impressive. I cut my bagels into three. Oh. I know! Are you making bagel chips? <laughs> I like a, I like a, a topping bread ratio, a little bit less bread than most people do. And also, I was raised in a nuclear house of three people, so all bagels were sliced into threes. Yeah. Yeah. I know, I'm, I'm just blowing your minds. 
So, when is the character who has the perfect bread cutting getting? Oh, the yeah, I don't have that superpower yet. Yeah. I have a personal theory that every person has two powers the super secret spy power and a, super, and a superhero power. And the super secret spy power has to do with an object relationship. And the, the supernatural power has to do with a human being relationship. So, um, yeah. But I'm not going to tell you uh, my other powers. Because <laughs> <laughs> I use them for evil. <laughs> <laughs> and may, and that, she's not saying that she hasn't been using them like this whole time. <laughs> <laughs> so, I'm just going to ask you something really good now. I can't remember what it was. Uh, that's your power! You suck in my head. Um, oh my god, I want blank. Okay. How about a question? How about a question while I'm yeah. blanking? Insidious, my books could be because they are funny. 
Um, and I have a, I have a whole lecture I do on comedy for, for authors, but people forgive you a lot if you make them laugh. And they'll even forgive you for changing their minds, which honestly you don't get that very often. Usually people are pretty resistant to having their minds change. But if you can make them laugh, if you can make them fall in love with a character uh, who's queer, like suddenly perspectives start to shift. Well, it's about making connections, right? That's yeah. how we shift, right? We don't. Yeah, and it's not intellectual. Yeah, and like this emotionally is, based. And that's the power of art in yeah. general, I think. Oh, fiction has a real advantage because it's little black and white words on a page. So, and you have to get into it. Very, very. There's a couple other ones. Might as well. Yeah. I have a question. So, who is your favorite all-time character that you've created? That I've created. Yeah. This is really hard because it shifts around all the time. So, like. My favorite book is always the one that I've just finished, because I just finished it, and it's a joy. Um, You're currently seeing me. <laughs> so my, like, I go through waves with my characters a lot, too. Uh, I feel a great affinity for Madame LeFou. She's one of my favorite characters, and she's very personal to me. Um, Triss, I'm a huge fan of Triss, who's from The Fifth Gender. Um, just because it was so much fun to write such a sunshine character who's so open to new experiences but has such a tough background. So, And then Lord Apeldama is one of the easiest characters for me to write. He's fabulous. He's fabulous. He's based on like my childhood, you know, all of the drag queens that I was surrounded by as a kid and that sort of thing. Um, so he's sort of nostalgic as well. He also seems to be an agent of my subconscious. So like I put him on screen and he just starts talking and I'm like, he might be Whatever he's talking about might have nothing to do with the current story, but it'll probably have something to do with three books in the future. So I better just let him talk. Like, he always knows what's going on better than I do. And I'm aware of how I sound when I say that. You must be saving so much money on therapy. You <laughs> <laughs> just let him out for a little while. Um, Thursdays, we let out. This one side of what I was is people always want a whole book with him, and I'm like, I could not. That is exhausting. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> Subverting the patriarchy kind of ideas. Um, uh, uh, Mercedes Lackey, I was thinking about recently, and I have a whole blog post about how she was the first author I read with queer characters on the on the page. And so, and again, fantasy, formative, 90s reading. Uh, it never occurred to me not to also because of her, because she just had all of those characters. Also, I realized recently she writes heroines for knees. So a lot of found family and stuff in her books that I was like, oh, of course, that's why I loved her so much. Um, I actually have a blog post that's like the, the authors that influenced me the most. So 
And then the other side of the equation are authors like James Harriet, Gerald Durrell, and P.G. Woodhouse, who are three British comedic authors that I was very heavily influenced by their humor, and then also Douglas Adams specifically. Yeah, I mean, the wit that you put into the characters. Is, yeah, know, the Terry Pratchett, of course, both of them, yeah. Even a cowboy, he has words. Who else? You had something? Yes, gentlemen, sir. Uh, if you were a tree, no, no, what I mean is, has any man reproduced your uh, weaponized umbrella? Not quite. I've seen, definitely seen quite a few tricked out ones, but none that so far that actually have projectiles in the vault. Eric Douglas can probably do He's right there in the front row. I would urge you against the acidic sprays. Yeah. <laughs> Just, lemon juice. Yeah. Lemon juice. Yeah, I think one of them is even so. so Or testable. 
Um, and then like everything just sort of slotted into place. Like, they, obviously then you have vampires and werewolves recruiting from the arts. So you have a patron of the arts system that's getting set into place, which they had in the Victorian era. You have vampires like dictating fashion, especially if they're out in society. So then you have like high necklines, deep concerns over decolletage, the hoop skirts and like showing bites or not showing bites, pale skin, like all of these things clearly influenced by vampires. Um, um, and I think that's partly an archeological thing as well, is my temptation is not to rewrite history, but to re-explain it in a new theory. Because uh, that's like the discipline that I was raised in, was you have the physical evidence, whatever it may be. The Victorians liked pale skin. How can I explain it in a different way than actually historically existed with the presence of these two monsters? Um, and so that's, that's basically how I came up with the whole universe. And then, of course, if you have vampires and werewolves, they too must have an apex predator. So what controls them? What, like, and if I have this theory of the soul, it has to cancel out this excess soul. And that's how I came up with the preternaturals and Alexia and I always wanted to write the urban fantasy trope of a lucky special person, but her only real ability is just being an electrical ground, like just negating others. <laughs> that was a real interesting like defensive ability. It's like literally your fangs disappear. Plus it's funny. <laughs> yes, and then the tethering, of, well, because you have all of these you know, uh, urban legends around vampires and werewolves, like how does that then fit into my universe? So, um, so yeah, so it just became, then it just became fun and games. Once I had the sort of basic structure in place, how does all of history fit into this? Breaking with the church, having England accept vampires and werewolves, especially into their intelligence and army, how that gives them the advantage. Obviously, that explains how England took over the known world because nothing else. Werewolves. <laughs> werewolves. <laughs> and so, the, the break with the Catholic Church, all that just became fun. <laughs> Yes, for those who don't know, the Sandra Shifter series, which is the series that's set in modern times, um, is not nudge, nudge, wink, wink at all related to the parasol. Uh, at all. Uh, but that's because now we have modern science, so now I have to actually figure out how to explain the presence of magic in the modern world. Yeah. And that's, and that's something that occasionally will frustrate readers, but I'm like, science is an evolving understanding of the universe, right? So. For the Victorian scientists in the parasol protectorate verse or the parasol verse, that makes all of their explanation for how Alexia exists, how vampires are, that it all makes sense to them because that's the science they had at the time. And then when you get around to what's happening in the San Andreas series after supersaturation, a whole new set of scientists have come up to explain everything that's going on. Because so. science evolves. Other question? How do you get those names? Like, uh, and I can't even say that. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, some of them are just spontaneous. Um, a lot of the, so I use uh, records of Victorian tombstones. Um, those are particularly useful. Um, I go play with Latin and Greek and then squidge it around a little bit and, and turn uh, something that has meaning. So all of the werewolf names mean wolf in various different languages. So they're all cookies. Um, Tunstall 
does not mean Wolf, which I should tell you from the very first book that he was never going to make it. So I do stuff like that quite a bit. Um, sometimes I just encounter a name out in the zeitgeist and I'm like mm, Googling it to see if I'm going to piss anybody off if I use it. <laughs> kind of like Channing Channing. Channing Channing or Chesterfield Channing. That was just being a butt hard. It's your party, baby. Yeah. <laughs> and, and that's it. The other thing is like, how absurd can I get? Because yes. like, names are also a source of humor. So like, let's just make a ridiculous name. <laughs> see how far I can push it. Well, they are a source of humor because when I read it, uh, yeah, the name was Sophronius, and then I read Mrs. Barnacle Goose. I did Mrs. Barnacle Goose. Yeah, sometimes the double barrel ones like that are just like me, just picking up two words I love and pairing them together. Sophronia was a very, very consciously chosen, actually. Um, so I do think about, from a writer perspective, I think about not having too many first names that's what I'm using the most in the book, um, that have the same first letter, because you want to make it easy on the readers to distinguish between characters uh, pattern recognition-wise. Um, so I had had Alexia, and I was going to do Prudence or Rue, so I wanted a main character who was, had, was not an A and was not up here. And I, you know, so that's, we got Sabrina from that. I wanted a name that was not too unfamiliar to readers, but had a real old-fashioned feel to it. Um, so Sophronia is a, a different version of Sophia, basically, um, and I just wanted to twist that a little bit. So, so I was being pretty thoughtful. Alexia was called Alexia from the get-go. Uh, I don't know why, where that name came from, but just did. Um, and then Prudence obviously happened to be called Prudence because I, I wanted to give her one of those faith-based names that was entirely inappropriate to the situation <laughs> and she wore, and was exactly opposite of her personality because Prudence is anything but prudent at all times. She is, in fact, charge in and fix it later. <laughs> She's rude. She is rude. She hates her name. <laughs> for good reason. Or Pablo. Or Pablo, yes. Other questions? Are we going to see more of Rue and So Sophronia shows up in the background of the Custer Protocol series and in person in a couple of the novellas, um, although always alluded to because of the nature of the business. I don't have any intentions to write a series with either of them or continue either of their series again. And partly that has to do with the contract relationship with traditional publishing. But I could do novellas or short stories with them if I feel like it. Um, so I, and I never rule anything out. But I don't. I haven't had an epiphany moment for uh, any of that. But uh, they do. They will, and usually, often will show up in the background or as side characters or whatever. The pop up again, whether I like it or not. Really. I <laughs> know <laughs> my story's done, but I want to say hey. <laughs> Very frustrating of them. Sorry. Oh. I saw the short stories, I read the short stories for uh, the uh, girls from the finishing school, you know, because you did the short one. For I did a novella and then two novels. We don't talk about the fact that they're novel like so, but go on. <laughs> okay, so, <laughs> so the finishing school. I, but, I didn't see one for Sophronia. 
No, Sophronia is the main character in the first series, and so she won't get a spin-off novel because then I would have to give it back to my traditional publisher. Oh, okay. Because that's the nature of the publishing industry. Um, so I would have to at least offer it to them if I decided to write another. Plus, the way I feel about a lot of my main characters is they got four books, like or five books. Like, we're good. They got to tell their story. Like, we're done now. I believe in finishing series. I've, as a reader, I've been burned a lot by authors inexplicably dying on me and not finishing series. So, so I feel very compelled to finish series um, as just in case I get run over. I love that they appear again in other Yes, books. but I will do that. Like, I will do a little, like, oh, oh, but they're still so alive. The wedding. Yes, they're still so doing stuff. Yes, one of my favorite authors was Kristen Ice Truck. And she's still alive, but can't write anymore or anything. Oh. Yeah, and it's like, it's left her really hanging, you know. And we can never control that. I, I, I could die in the middle of a series in the future. But uh, <laughs> I apologize no, I have but, uh, but often with my stuff, there's like, for the traditionally published series, there's like contract reasons I did what I did. So like, with the Custard Protocol series, the first two books are Ruse books and can be read as a duology. I feel like that's a solid little two book series. And that's because I had a two book contract. And I wasn't sure if I was going to sign another contract with my publisher. So I wanted to make sure that you guys got a satisfying little story with those two. And then I did the you know, Primrose's book and Percy's book as like the two addendums to satisfy. A, I, I did re-up and sign a second contract. But, um, but so, I, so you know, some of these decisions are made for like the business end of the spectrum as series or not. Uh, so the reason that all of the spin-offs are standalone stories with side characters is because I'm out of contract for those. So because of the terms of what's called my option clause, if I write novella length um, and with characters that are not the main characters, I can do whatever I want and I can self-publish them and stuff like that. So that's that's kind of what's going on in the background. Okay. Which is no shade on like my traditional publisher. They gave me a platform. We've had like a fantastic working relationship. It's it's all golden. It's just the nature of the publishing industry in play, basically. Now I'm loving the novellas because you get to care about these characters. Yeah. So there's more to it. I I joke I get to write my own fanfic. They get, they get <laughs> yes. they tell their story. Exactly. Exactly. And it's a lot. That's a lot of fun for me. But like. On the DL, the second two of the, the Delightfully Deadly series, which is three books, um, only the first one is, is actually a novella. The other two are a little bit longer than that, but so technically I should have published them myself, but we won't tell anybody. Uh, <laughs> I think they're novellas. Yes, exactly. They're novellas. The long, they're novellas. What I read was a long novella. Exactly, thank you. Just a little long novel you're looking for. So, a long novella, that's it. With us being in Steampunk, right? So let's talk about the, the workbook and the Victorian stuff, right? Sure. You lived in New England. Yes, a lot, quite a bit. Which yep. also means San Francisco. Yes, that's my hometown. So how much of each of those experiences have you pulled into your settings? I mean, we're doing Western here. Well, I, I will say that I only take my characters to places I've visited. Uh -huh. So once they do leave the UK in particular and start traveling, those characters are traveling places I've traveled. 
And I'm well aware that I'm not time traveling, and I'm not going to France in the Victorian era. I'm not going to Singapore in the Victorian era or anything like that. But I do like to know, I don't know, what the smell of a place is, what the light, like the angle of the light, the feel of the vegetation. I do think there are things about places as you travel that don't change over time, or they don't change over the time of human history all that much. Um, and so that that's one of the things I do is so uh, like all of the archaeological sites that my characters go to are, are my sites or sites that I've worked on um, that that kind of thing. So yeah. I do take that into account. Have you brought them in San Francisco? In, in so I started writing the San Andreas Shifter series specifically because I wanted to write something set in the Bay Area. Right, but that's but not, modern. No, I've never done America. I've consciously never done America in the parasol verse, okay. and that's because of what I did to America. <laughs> so America's, uh, we, we get a brief visit of the East Coast in how to, yeah, in this one, in How to Marry a Werewolf, because the heroine is American. So you get a brief visit, um, but there, America has gone very anti-supernatural, and so there's a real, like, kind of religious bent to their behavior around vampires and werewolves and their treatment of your things. Yeah, so... I'm not ruling it out, but I haven't yet written in the U.S. Really, so we got one more, one more minute. So, who's last question? Last, there you go. She was. Are, are we ever going to get uh, Tash and Arsenic being introduced to Ivy? <laughs> <laughs> oh my God! I alluded to that, didn't I? <laughs> <laughs> I forgot about that. Yeah, the, the significant others. That would make a really good, I do have like wild plans. I think it would be really fun to write like short stories or little pieces about like families at different holiday seasons or what. Like I've always wanted to do. The graphic novel, that screen graphic novel. I've always wanted to do Lord Apaldama, Alexia, Lurbacon, and Prudence when Prudence is like a teenager at the Christmas season or something, just being a complete shit show around the table. I think that would be really fun to write. That is also a really fun idea. Is you put Ivy in the room, it's gonna be good. It's gonna be outrageous, exactly. Um, like she's, who knows how Ivy's gonna behave to the twins bringing home this significant other. She's just gonna, she's gonna be very Ivy about it. She'll probably just attempt to completely ignore Tash entirely and be like, oh, we're not gonna, we're gonna imagine that hasn't happened. <laughs> pretend. Um, so yeah, she's, she's a very fun character, but like what Apaldama, I think a short, is more suited to a, to a shorter vignette piece. Um, it is one of the reasons I recommend being on my uh, newsletter, if you aren't, because the newsletter uh, is the only place where, if it isn't like a complete story, or if I don't think it's suitable to really be published, why, if it is purely a fan service piece, um, I will only offer those to my newsletter. So that I do newsletter exclusives quite a bit, where I'm just like, yeah, this is just a vignette thing. Um, you know, it's only a couple thousand words or what have you. It's not worth it for me to publish it, but you guys can buy it for about 50 or whatever, like go to. Because um, frankly, I just don't want, like, I don't want people who aren't really part of the universe picking up something and then being like, what the hell is this? Like, I don't understand anything that's going on. Context people. It's not for them. Yeah, exactly. Um, so I do do that quite a bit. So where can people find you for the rest of the weekend? I'll be wandering around here. I have two panels each day, so a couple panels tomorrow, a couple panels on Sunday. If you want me to sign anything, just catch me. 
I hang out with the uh, Mad Rescue and the Grand Arbiter a lot, so you, know, you can look for me at T-Dueling. So just listen. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yes, uh, it, always just, just catch, catch me if you can, and I'm happy to you know, chat or sign things or what have you. I have a bunch of uh, bookmarks here. Please take the bookmarks. I don't want to take them home with me, <laughs> including this, the coveted bookmark that has um, all of my books in order, and on the back is all of the books by other people that I recommend the most. So, oh, nice. Uh, so yes. And it's rainbowy. And it's rainbowy. Um, that, those are the spine colors of all of the books because that's the kind of human I am. Um, and then this one, which is my nonfiction, if you're interested in like how I write, which tips on writing. That I actually, I actually wrote a nonfiction book. Um, yeah, lots of other. Well, thank you so much. Thank you all for coming. Thank you for listening to the Creative Play and Podcast Network. And feel free to enjoy our other shows, such as D&D Journey of the Fifth Edition and Scion Ragnarok and Roll, a Scion hero to Ragnarok story. Thank you for listening.